a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Hey, we're going to catch up again with uh, Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com. It's our kind of Tuesday thing. Eric, how are you today? I'm in a really good mood. There's been some breaking news that's going to gladden everybody's heart who's listening to us today. Let's talk a little bit about this. You and I were just briefly talking on the air. You said the name Thomas Massey, and I went, yes, yes, we got we got to talk about this. So I just saw this come across my X or Twitter feed earlier this morning. Talk to me about the kill switch bill that Massey is behind. Yeah, he's trying to strangle uh, monetary uh, backing for the Biden kill switch, which you and I have talked about before, which is being sold to the public much like the vaccines were sold and that it's being sold very dishonestly. They uh, are, are framing it as something that's going to deal with the problem of dangerous drunk drivers, you know, impaired drivers is how they put it. But uh, if you get into the lingo of the language, and I'm going to be writing about this shortly and including some actual language from the actual legislation or the order from Biden, uh, it, it will be about monitoring driver performance. That's the terminology that they use, which means that if they don't like your performance, meaning if, you know, you're driving too fast or you're, whatever you're doing that they don't like, they can have the car shut itself off. And, and, and Tom Massey from Kentucky, bless him, is attempting to derail that. You know, so I, I was very happy to see that, and I'm hoping, uh, hoping that he manages to succeed in his effort. Hear, hear. Yeah, that's uh, – man – it just seems like no matter where we turn, there's always another angle. Well, and then we want to get control this way, and it's uh, it's a full-time job just staying abreast of all the different ways that people in power are trying to, uh, you know, ham us in. It is, and I think, again, though, you know, this is illustrative of the, illustrative of the fact that they are always dissembling dishonest and disingenuous, if, you know, and that's putting it politely. Let's just uh, frankly state what they're doing, which is lying to us. You know, this is not about dealing with with drunk drivers or even impaired drivers. Uh, It's about using that as a pretext to control people's driving, period. That's what this is all about. And anybody who doubts that should read the language of the actual order. And again, I'm going to be writing about that. and I'll have an article up on the site either later today or sometime tomorrow for those who are interested. Okay, I appreciate you keeping keeping tabs on that. The other big story yesterday, and that was, you know, I I don't spend a lot of time dwelling on uh, this mass shooting or that mass shooting. They get hyped pretty hard by the media. But it was very telling that uh, the mass shooter back in March who uh, shot up a a Christian school in Tennessee, the the police and and, uh, other authorities have sat on this uh, shooter's manifesto for some time. Well, Stephen Crowder, to his credit, apparently Mm -hmm. got a hold of some of the images of it and leaked them. It's as bad as what people were saying. Sure. And again, notice the pattern, the common thread, the disingenuousness, uh, the, 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 the deliberate uh, lying to people about things when uh, the truth is at issue. You know, they're, they're quite happy uh, to tout when somebody who they can frame as a so-called white supremacist or MAGA supporter does something because it, it furthers their agenda. But in this case, we've got a, a person uh, I think it was a biological man who was transitioning into a, a tra- dressing like a woman. I'm not going to use that word transitioning because that's, that's, that's an etymological outrage. 
somebody was impersonating a, a woman, let's put it that way, trying to, mm-hmm. uh, who, who performed this atrocity and then left this horrific manifesto talking about how uh, they were specifically going to target uh, white people for their privilege and uh, murder as many of them as this person could possibly do. Now, everybody knows it's not even a debatable point. It's just you know so tiresome uh, that if it had been the reverse, if we'd had somebody who had done something similar and had left a manifesto talking about how they hated black people or they hated Jewish people or whoever, whatever the minority group is, and that they were going to go on a rampage, that would have been 24-7 for months on end if that had been the case. But of course, here they deliberately suppressed it. And now I think it's, who was it, the mayor of Nashville or some other high official is actually criticizing Crowder and other people for conveying to, to the public the actual words of the shooter. Somehow that's you know, that's problematic in this case somehow. It, it goes to show, too, that uh, all of the misgivings we've had about uh, trusting mainstream media were not uh, ill-founded. I mean, they're, they're not there to tell you the truth. They're there to keep you within a particular narrative that serves the interests of those in power or those who pay them or who advertise with them. But you're not going to learn the truth from them. No, but there's a silver lining here to this cloud. And it is that these, these arrogant pathological people have a blind spot to their own arrogance, uh, you know, and therefore it, they're not chastened by what they do. They don't think to themselves, "Oops, you know, I pushed it to a little bit, a little bit too far. I really ought to dial it back uh, a little bit." No, they double down on it because they're that arrogant. They think they can get away with continuing to do this, and so all they're doing is further digging their own graves. Nobody outside of a handful of buying sheep uh, trusts anything that the media has to say anymore, or the government for that matter. And I think that that's extraordinarily healthy. You know, as tough as times are right now, returning to a state wherein citizens of a free country ask questions and don't just do what they're told and don't just mindlessly obey what so-called authority tells them to do. I think that's a very good thing, ultimately. No, I, I would agree. And and I think this this also helps to uh, to justify the, the concerns people have expressed over all of the angst and all of the agitating over so-called white privilege, since that was something yep. that, that figured when when she talked about who she was going to shoot, she made it very clear: I'm going after the the children, the white children, these privileged little crackers, as, as she called them. And it's it's just this this is boilerplate, left wing, you know, hate speech that uh, that was being directed at white people and then acted on. And, and, you know, ironically, this, this individual uh, was himself or herself a cracker, too, right? Uh, it, it's oh, it's yeah. an interesting phenomenon. I've heard others comment on this, that we have this unique uh, dynamic playing out where we've got one group of people in this country, white leftists, who seem to hate themselves and are willing to flagellate themselves publicly while they're also flagellating people who happen to share the same skin color. And it's, it's a derangement. It's a severe mental illness. It's not just racism. It's something that, that is far worse than mere racism. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, the whole the whole left-wing gulag um, is not necessarily a literal physical place so much as it's a literal mental gulag that uh, that you're herded into. And, and basically, you know, you're, you're kept there when someone is telling you, you can believe this, you can say this, you have to do this. Um, it's, it's all about, you know, control from above. Yep, and I've been saying for some time, and I think you've also said the same thing that uh, one of the one of the sad uh, after effects of the past several years has been that mental illness has been egged on by normalizing it. You know, this masking stuff and the weaponization of hypochondria, this idea that 
uh, a person can, by claiming that they feel they're female if they're male or the reverse, actually literally become that, that's deranged. That's mentally ill. Textbook. Sorry if I'm hurting any of these feelings, but you can't change your sex by, by saying that you feel differently about the sex that you were born with. It's, it's mentally ill to believe that you can become a different sex just because you feel that you're a different sex. And that shouldn't be encouraged. Now, you know, I'm not saying that there aren't people out there who have gender dysphoria or confused and so on. But while one can have compassion for them, uh, it, it is not compassionate to pretend that their mental illness is healthy. Well, and you have to wonder, too, about, uh, you know, I, I just I looked at the three or four pages of, of material that, that Crowder published yesterday. And you have to wonder what could make a person so uh, filled with anger, so filled with hate that, uh, you know, the only way that they really feel like they should be dealing with it is kill the, the children of those that they oppose, you know, and show them you are powerless to stop me from doing this. Well, it, that's a fairly easy question to answer. You know, if you look at what they're teaching kids these days, and not just in the government schools, but the culture generally, uh, about how horribly oppressive the society that they live in is, uh, and how it's rife with racism and homophobia and all these other phobias and such, uh, and what they've succeeded in doing is is turning people uh, against each other, if not putting their hands on each other's throats. So, you know, you foster this hate and this incivility, and it's going to have consequences, especially for people who are mentally ill already. You know, you've got a marginal person who is encouraged to act out their violent fantasies, because after all, in, in, in that person's mind, uh, you know, they were dealing with the oppressors, with people who were doing horrible, awful things to, you know, people who are trying to, quote unquote, transition and so on. Well, I look forward to a return of sanity at some point, but uh, what lies between uh, now and then, I don't like to think about too much. It, it creeps me out, and, it, and it's a little discouraging. Well, yeah, but you know, think you've had food poisoning, right? I have. It's really wretched when you have food poisoning. You know, if, if you get a bad case of it, you're probably going to be hugging the toilet for 12 hours. You're not going to be leaving the bathroom, and that's extraordinarily unpleasant. But you know, after you purge all of that bad stuff out of your system, you feel good again, and I think... We're right now at the stage of hugging the toilet. And just trying to find the courage to yep. <laughs> stick our finger down our throat. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Sorry. For anybody who's, you know, you know, sitting down for lunch or whatever or breakfast, that that's probably some vivid imagery. We have uh, yep. we've got to take a quick break here. We're talking with Eric Peters from EricPetersAutos.com. There is a link which you will find in my show notes at the Brianhideshow.com. Take you right to Eric's website. Take the time to read his articles. Look at the comments. You'll find some very intelligent contributors there. And we'll be back to continue our conversation right after this. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com is my guest. When Eric and I visit to liberty, freedom, you know, personal autonomy, that's that's always uh, at the heart of what we're talking about. But Eric, I find that uh, we, we increasingly have some crossover into the area of uh, EVs. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it turns out they pertain to a lot of that freedom and autonomy. Yeah, well, they're almost kind of the fulcrum for the whole lar- larger debate about liberty. You know, that's why I write about it so often. And, uh, you know, people who follow my columns and who listen to us talk know that I've had my uh, 
personal grudge wrestling matches with EVs. And most recently, I had another one when I attempted to use a fast charger to get some charge into the EV. The problem was I couldn't charge it, literally, because the thing wouldn't accept my credit card. And this is apparently a common problem. It's actually happened to me before. Um, it's happened to lots of people. People who are listening who have EVs probably know what I'm talking about. What they want is for you to use their app and, and your QR code, to tie, and that, they want that to be tied to your phone. And they don't accept cash. Isn't that interesting? So, you mm-hmm. know, when you go to buy gas, uh, you can use a credit card, but you don't have to. You can pay with cash. You can't do it at the fast charger kiosk. I wonder why that is. And I got to thinking about it, and I got to realizing that it's all about kind of habituating people to this CBDC thing, to digital money, to electronic transactions, uh, so that they can, again, keep track not only of your driving, but of your spending and using. So, you know, they know how much energy you're using, and if you're using too much, they can they can winnow back how much you're using. And, of course, they can meter your uh, access to electricity, too, because it's all tied together into what they call the Internet of Things, and people should be aware of this. And, and understand how this net is closing around us all. And if it is cinched tight, we're going to have no freedom to do anything except that which they allow us to do. Yep. It seems like every day we're getting just a little bit closer to uh, making that Black Mirror episode a reality. You know, yeah. where your social score determines whether or not you can buy something, whether or not you can rent the good car. Um, I'm telling you, it's Eric, it's, it's funny to see it portrayed as, you know, dystopian science fiction. And it's quite another thing to see it playing out right in front of our eyes. Yeah, and you know, we've had a predicate for this. You know, everybody knows about the self-checkout kiosks at supermarkets and at at other stores, right? Right. That they use to replace in-person human cashiers. Well, the latest thing is, you know, you you probably had the same same experience. If there's six of those things, probably five of them won't accept cash. You know, they've now got it so that only. only one will accept cash. And why are they doing that? It's not because there's a shortage of cash. What they're trying to do is, again, habituate and normalize this to get people used to the idea of not using dirty money, you know, cash, anonymous cash, so that they don't know what you're buying. They want to know everything about you, and when they know everything about you, they can control you. Dang it. It, it is so true. So we're being forced into a choice, and I guess the concerning thing for me, Eric, is some of us see it coming, but a lot of people don't, or if they see it coming, they just kind of root shrug and, well, what do you do, yeah. you know? Well, what do you do? Well, one thing you can do is refuse to play along with it. Insist on, on paying for things with cash. We have a legal argument in our favor, which is that uh, cash money is still legal tender, literally. They are obliged to accept it. So if you go into a store and you want to purchase something and they won't accept cash, you could always just put the cash on the counter and walk out with the things that you just paid for. What are they going to do? You paid for them using legitimate currency, uh, legal for all debts, public and private. And make it plain that you're not going to participate in this. You're not going to use digital money. You know, I think it's actually a growing trend from what I gather by feeling the pulse, from which I get from getting calls and emails from people all over the country. More and more people are taking a conscious decision to use cash rather than a debit or credit card. And I think that that's a very effective tool uh, to, to thwart what they're trying to impose on us. And it's hard to it's hard to imagine that there are people who still um, naively and I think well intendedly believe, but but government's there to help us, Eric. You know, and I know. And, I know. If, and if they ever tried, if they tried to do something bad to us, the media would tell us, the press would tell us, don't you know? Yeah, well, hopefully that naivete is dissipating. But you know, another way to look at this: Would you want, as an adult man, to have your parents and your parents ostensibly love you, and they're at least your parents? But would you want your parents? 
supervising every transaction that you made, knowing uh, everything that you bought, uh, knowing how much money that you made, and so on and so forth? Of course not. Most people would not want even their own parents to have that information because it's an invasion of your, your space as an adult person. Well, imagine the government, which doesn't even have the benevolent attitude of your parents, uh, doing the same for the purpose of doing malignant things to you. Yep. And, and it, it takes it takes a conscious decision for a person to stand up and say, I'm not going to go along with that or I'm not going to be a part of that. There's risk involved. Yep. There, you might you might give up a little bit of discomfort. But, Eric, I think you have you and I have both been around long enough to understand if you want to be a free individual, if you really want to exercise your freedom at maximum potential, you got to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. Absolutely. And, you know, I think we're all kind of victims of what you might call future shock. Things have been happening so fast uh, over the last five or so years, you know, even before the (laughs) pandemic, uh, (laughs) that it's hard for people. You know, your head spins around. It's difficult to keep up with it all. We've had the great luxury, uh, and I'm wistful for it, you know, of of living in a a relatively free, stable country where things were predictable. And while, yes, there were, uh, you know, there were problems with corruption and influence peddling, you didn't have the feeling that the entire system was completely and thoroughly corrupt. And not only that, but evil. You know, and actively hostile to your interests. It wasn't just that they were trying to, you know, filch some money on the side. They were trying to destroy you and your way of life. Well, that's the case now. And, of course, it's hard to come to grips with that, but it's necessary to come to grips with that. That's the only way that we can fight this. And it's discouraging when you see that the people who do these criminal acts, and I'm talking Dr. Fauci and all, all those others in these, these seemingly, you know, uh, elevated positions in the ivory tower, they don't ever get punished. They can do crimes against system. humanity. Not by the system, and we cannot count on the system, which is corrupt, to hold accountable corrupt people, can we? But what we do, what we have the power to do, is to, uh, to evince and show our great contempt for them, to not treat them politely, to regard them the same manner that we would a piece of dog poo in the sidewalk. Uh, that's how we deal with people like Fauci and all the rest of them. You know, they shouldn't be able to show their face in public without getting hissed at and booed and things of that nature. And we have the power to do that. And if we exercise that power, the problem will solve itself. Yep. Uh, in the meantime, though, we've got we've to be planning to uh, stand as independent of them as possible, to, to be able to say, no, thank you, when uh, the political class <laughs> offers to uh, bestow another blessing on us. That's right. Speaking of which, do you want to hear about the latest battery breakthrough? Oh, yes. So, have you ever heard of VinFast? Uh, no, I don't think so. Okay, it's a Vietnamese EV company that's beginning to establish dealer networks in this country. And they've solved the problem of the high cost of, of electric cars. Guess how? How's that? You buy the car, but then they rent you the battery. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> So you're making monthly payments on the car, and then you're also going to make monthly payments on the battery, which they own. So effectively, you're going to be driving a device that uh, that won't go unless the owner of the battery that powers it allows you to. Wow, that's uh, that is something else. I mean, that's uh, dang. <laughs> the chutzpah. For people who are listening who are interested in more on that, I've got an article up on the site about it. We rent you the battery. I mean, that's a, that's some Ray Kroc level stuff, right? Well, no, you know, it's again, it's of a piece with this this WEF model of us owning nothing. That's what they mean. 
uh, and them owning everything. What they want is to have us living the, the Netflix model, where we just constantly pay a subscription for everything. We own nothing. We live on sufferance. We're allowed to use the things that we need, provided we pay the monthly fee, the yearly fee, whatever it is. But the point being, we never stop paying, and they always controlling. Yep. Well, it's it's an interesting, brave new world that the central planners are are pulling together for us, Eric. But uh, I don't know if they realize. For some of it, it's for some of us, it's an option, and we may choose to to go another direction. Eric Peters, sure. thanks so much for being my guest today. As always, uh, informative to talk with you. I hope people uh, will follow the link I provide in the show notes and spend some quality time on your website. Thank you, Brian. All right, we'll talk again soon. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show, and uh, thank you so much for considering what's on the show today. I, I really, I, I appreciate those who took the time to reach out to me last week. When when I take a few days off, I, I usually don't, uh, you know, make a fanfare about it. And I filled in for a friend last week, and of course, didn't do my own show. And uh, I appreciate that handful of people who are like, "Hey, everything okay?" I appreciate that you check up on me, just because, you know, it's a crazy world out there. Got a great article here, by the way. Um, one of the things that I find challenging, sometimes a little bit frustrating, definitely kind of intimidating, is what do you do when you see the economy is headed for some very, very difficult waters? And and another way of looking at this, and I got to tip my hat to Jeff Thomas. He asks, what would you do if you knew you were standing on a bullseye where a bomb would soon be dropped? In fact, um, he has this article here about uh, escaping the socioeconomic bullseye. I thought this might be kind of relevant because I'm pretty sure I'm not the only one who's like worried. Well, what if uh, what if inflation continues or increases? My money buys less and less and less. What if uh, you know the economy crashes? What if they separate from the gold standard? What? Oh, they did that 50 years ago. Okay, well, never mind. Never mind. No, but what can you do? And the point is that you do have options. But I love the analogy that Jeff Thomas uses here. He says, imagine that it's August 5th. 1945, and you're the only person in Hiroshima who knows that the following day the U.S. will drop an atomic bomb in your backyard. Now, he says it goes without saying that you would choose the fastest form of transportation available to you and head out of the city as quickly as possible. But here's the question, where would you go? And Jeff Thomas says it it wouldn't matter very much. The goal would be get as far as possible from Hiroshima, since you wouldn't know how far out the damage would extend. Now, he says, for many years, I've been advising people on what I've perceived as a coming economic crisis that would carry with it both a political crisis and a social crisis of epic proportions. Now, these three arrows would be concurrent with each one exacerbating the other two. So, not surprisingly, many people have either been unwilling or unable to accept that such a major series of events might take place. However, the writing is now very much on the wall, and even those who don't really understand the crisis have a feeling in the pit of their stomachs that unfolding events will end very badly. 
So he says, we're at the Hiroshima moment, that brief time prior to the collapse stage of the crisis when it may still be possible to get out of Dodge. And he says, much like Hiroshima, the devastation will have its epicenters, and they will be the major cities of those countries that will be most greatly impacted. Now, in this case, he's talking about places like New York City, London, Toronto, Tokyo, Melbourne. Others uh, like this will experience dramatic decline in quality of life. In fact, he points out, this is already underway. In fact, people have already begun exiting the affected cities, not planning to return. So, we can imagine these epicenters as the bullseye in the image above. They represent the worst places to be caught in the coming years of crisis. But, he says, like Hiroshima... The areas immediately outside the city will be the second riskiest places to be. We might see them as the red ring on the target in the image above. So, what locations might they be? Well, he says the fact that some of the world's most prominent cities will be the epicenter tells us that the countries in which they exist have devolved to the point that their economies are deeply in trouble. Therefore, after an initial hit in the major cities, the remainder of each country will experience economic turmoil, which will generate political and social turmoil. And again, this has already begun in such countries as the U.S., the U.K., Canada, the E.U., and Australia. Therefore, those who were located in, say, New York may have already left for perceived greener pastures in Colorado, Texas, or Florida. But he says this solution may very well prove to be very temporary, as the same governments that created the strife in the cities will impact those who sought to escape but who remain within the country's borders. Also, these locations are now filling up with refugees from cities who often find themselves unwelcome by longtime residents. So what locations then would constitute the white band in the bullseye, the next band away from the bullseye? Well, that might be countries that are not part of the former free world. In other words, the host of countries that followed the U.S. into prosperity after World War II and then followed it into destructive debt decades later. They'd be the countries that have existed on a lower economic tier, failing to get on the A-team, but still having ridden on the coattails of the U.S. via trade agreements. Now, such countries would be heavily impacted by the collapse, but with less distance to fall. Therefore, it wouldn't be such a dramatic change when that uh, crash does occur. This would include countries like uh, Mexico, Spain, Colombia, and a host of others. Now, even further from the epicenter would be the outer rings, and those are the countries that have taken on a minimum of trade and other forms of dependence dependence upon the U.S. and its main partners. So here we're talking about countries like Thailand, Uruguay, and other far-flung underachievers. So Uruguay, for instance imports only about 10% of what it consumes, and almost all of that comes from other Spanish-speaking countries. Now, it also only exports about 10% of what it produces. And while this has caused Uruguay to remain a sleepy little country with minimal dynamics, it also has allowed it to sit out major events elsewhere in the world. Just as, for instance, in the last century, it sat out both world wars and the Great Depression. So Jeff Thomas says, Therefore, those who recognize that their home country and its population centers may soon become less livable may find that by moving to uh, Cafayate, I hope I'm saying that right, Argentina, Chiang Mao, Thailand, or Lake Chapala, Mexico, may dramatically decrease the odds of becoming a casualty of the unfolding crisis. 
But there's another final ring on the target that he shows, and that is the white ring. And this one goes one step further. Now, Jeff Thomas says, look, in times of crisis, wealth does not vanish. It just changes hands and often geographical location. Therefore, as wealth exits the more troubled countries of the world, it will gravitate to the less troubled jurisdictions. As the old saying goes, money flows to where it's treated best. Now, when this occurs, he says, target jurisdictions will experience development, prosperity, and trickle-down advances in other social conditions. There will, therefore, be locations in the world that are on the rise even as other locations are in decline. Now, he does warn, in the West, however, there are just a handful of jurisdictions that stand to rise as a result of the crisis. Now, in Asia, there are many. In fact, he says, in each of the more productive countries of Asia, the mood on the street is actually one of opportunity. You'll see this in Korea, Malaysia, Vietnam, and others. The mood is buoyant. Asians fully understand that this is their century. On any evening out with Asian businessmen, we find that the former perception of playing second fiddle to the West is gone. That the only obstacle remaining to Asians is China. Asian industrialists regard their main objective to be building up factories and exports to raise their position against their one great local rival. So over the coming decades, he says, Asia will be in a literal gold rush as, nation, as nations compete to challenge China's present lead. So the world is therefore like a series of concentric circles of opportunity. I like that he's using this bullseye analogy. The outer rings afford the greatest likelihood of prosperity. Conversely, the closer the individual is to the epicenter of the crisis, the poorer his chances are to thrive in what's certain to be a period of dramatic change. So Jeff Thomas says at such a time... It might be advisable for the reader to ponder which of the rings would best represent the one in which he presently resides and whether it might be advantageous or even necessary to choose another. I don't think I've ever heard it put quite that way, but it sure does make sense. Now, look, I'm not a financial advisor. I'm not uh, an economist. I'm, I'm nobody except a guy who happens to be kind of halfway paying attention and is encouraging everybody around me to do the same. But I'm going to throw this out there, even though I'm not an expert at any level. And I'm going to suggest that if this economic tsunami is approaching, and I have every reason to believe that it is, this would probably be a very good time to strengthen the the people in your life or strengthen the relationships with the people in your life that you might have to team up with. In fact, maybe it's time to team up with those people. And make sure that, uh, you know, you're committed to helping each other get through those difficult times. See, I'm not trying to be pessimistic when I say this, but what I see coming is going to be painful. And I think every single one of us, I think even the very wealthy are going to feel the pain of the kind of economic correction that is due. And I don't say that with a sense of, yeah, they they deserve it, man. Screw the rich. (laughs) No, I want to see them prosper because, frankly, I, I want to be one of them one day. Or at least, you know, be comfortable. <laughs> but it's not going to be comfortable, at least in the short term. And the better we are at building our tribe, for lack of a better phrase, I think the better chance we have of weathering the storm and, and mostly coming out intact. We're definitely going to come out a lot wiser on the other end of whatever awaits us. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Final segment on today's show. This is for November 7th, 2023. By the way, it's an election day, so if that makes you, uh, you know, stir with a little patriotism to get out there and get your sticker, I'd say go and do it. Use your influence as wisely as you can, wherever you happen to be standing. That's that's kind of the, that's the, the little uh, mantra of leadership, and that's what leadership consists of. So, you know, know the issues, know the candidates, vote for those that are available, and just anticipate we've got a whole year until the next uh, big circus. That's a topic for another time. Okay, a couple articles I want to share in this final segment. Actually, the article of the day, I want to point you to this one. I, I grabbed this because we've been having a little bit of a lesson in, in what inflation is. And it came home the other day when my son, you know, came in and he was just like, oh, man, I sure have spent a lot of money on gas this last month. And I mean, he's, he's got his own car. He pays for his own gas. And I'm very proud of him for doing so. But I just, I had to ask, so how much have you spent? And it was like 293 bucks. And I went, okay. For a high school senior, 300 bucks in gasoline. Now, granted, he's been participating in extracurricular activities. You know, this is to and from school every day. It's to and from work each weekend. But he's feeling the pain. And he's certainly not alone. We're all feeling the pain of inflation. And I know I want to look for the for the silver lining too. Well, there's got to be something good about this. That you know, uh, just uh, what's the what's the good point? And, and some people, to their credit, have said, well, you know, the nice thing about inflation is our wages are getting higher and higher. To which I say, what's this we stuff, pale face? I'm <laughs> I'm not seeing a whole lot of people getting getting higher wages. But you know, this idea that well, it's okay if inflation is going on because that's you know the silver lining is it's going to bring people's wages up. That's not what happens. And to to further drive that point home, Peter Jacobson from the Foundation for Economic Education sets the record straight on how higher wages are not the silver lining for inflation. Now he does this gently. And he does it as a skilled economist would. Highly recommend his article, if, if nothing else, just to help you better understand what inflation is and, you know, what, what the fixes are versus what the fixes aren't. Don't just smile, well, at least I'll be making more. <laughs> yeah, but it's buying less. That's, that's the scary part. All right, another article that I wanted to share with you, uh, this is... Just because I hear so much weird talk about toxic masculinity and, well, men are, you know, of course, you know, these Neanderthals and the woke world, of course, decries anything masculine. Candace McManaman, writing for intellectualtakeout.org, has an excellent article about masculine men as unsung heroes to women. Very good stuff. And she, she makes the case that, I mean, look, this is just common sense. There's a difference between men and women. And it's a complementary difference, rather. And it's not, uh, you know, politically advantageous for guys to say, ladies, let us go collect the garbage, garbage, let us fight the wars, let us fight the forest fires, you know, let us do the dirty work. That's not condescending. 
But, you know, you don't tell that to somebody who's laboring under, you know, critical theory and, and, uh, and wokeness. Candace makes a really good case that masculine men actually are a net positive in the world. And guys, it's probably a good reason for us not to, you know, become too comfortable like some big neutered, you know, Tomcat, former Tomcat. <laughs> we gotta, we've got to be, we got to stand up and be men. That doesn't mean brash and pushy and burping the alphabet and stuff like that. It just means that we are willing to do what is required of men and do it without complaint. I mean, do we expect that we should have it any easier than those who came before us? I've had some time to go through a lot of uh, family memorabilia, family photos, diaries, you know, old uh, cards and 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 notebooks and stuff that uh, my mom has been hanging on to for years. She's 88. She's she's kind of she is kind of the last member of her generation. So many of her friends and family have already passed on and so she has inherited a lot of their, you know, historical records. And because you know, she anticipates that she probably has fewer days ahead of her than than behind her. She has been very meticulously going through and organizing, deciding what to keep and whatnot, which is kind of a nice thing for me and for my kids to get to know those who came before us. And man, I'll tell you, the more I learn about who these people were and what they did and the kind of uh, deprivation that was, was just normal part of their life, but... You know, they just buckled. They didn't complain. They just did what needed to be done. They found happiness. They raised productive families. I'm in awe. And I'm also very conscious of, man, I, I have it pretty good. Again, I'm, I'm not a particularly smart, talented, good-looking guy. But I have a pretty comfortable life, all things considered. I've not had to clear sagebrush and lava rocks for, you know, years on end just to have farmable land that hopefully I can make enough of a living to feed my family. Kind of appreciate stuff like this the more you get to know the people who came before us. And and I'll tell you, I want to be able to look them in the eye someday, not as some, you know, pampered, spoiled little child who wasn't worthy of what they bequeathed to us. But I think we're all going to get toughened up here at some point. Anyway, moving on. One final thought here. Um, We're in a fourth turning cycle. War is always part of a fourth-turning cycle. And James Howard Kunstler, in his latest article, talks about the four wars. He says, China's grand strategy to take its turn at dominance over the global scene depends on bogging down the U.S. in four wars at once. And how's it working so far? Well, he says, pretty darn well. Amazingly, China hardly had to lift a finger to make it happen, although it did write some bank checks to the soulless old grifter sitting in the White House. Our country has arranged its collapse and downfall masterfully on its own. Now, what are these four wars that China has us bogged down in? I was curious too, and this here's the answer. War number one, of course, is Ukraine. There was no need to start that war, you understand, which by now has not only bled Ukraine's young male population to the bone. What did I hear? The average age of the Ukrainian on the battlefield right now? Average age of their soldier, 43 Where are all of the young men? You and I know the answer to that question. It's it's, it's ugly beyond belief. Scary stuff. We've also drained our own military of field weapons and ammunition. Now, Kunstler goes into why 
After the Soviet collapse, Ukraine existed as a poor backwater in Russia's orbit, causing no trouble for anyone except itself due to uh, world-beating corruption until the USA started a push to include it in NATO. Now, our neoconservatives made it clear the purpose of this was to hem in and weaken Russia. Why? Reasons, they said. And this policy alarmed and infuriated the Russians who made it clear that NATO membership wasn't going to happen. But the U.S. persisted. In 2014, they engineered a coup against the Russian-leaning president Yanukovych, Yanukovych, rather, spurring his replacements, first Poroshenko and then Zelensky, to pound the ethnic Russian provinces of Donbass with rockets and artillery for years on end. Meanwhile, we trained and supplied and armed a large Ukrainian army and refused to negotiate the NATO expansion in good faith until Mr. Putin had enough in 2022 and then moved to put a stop to all this monkey business. So that's war number one. War number two, this is the Middle East, of course. Now we've got the Abraham Accords and normalizing relations between Saudi Arabia and Israel. After the Hamas operation of October 7th, it's all been blown up. Now Israel has to deal with the latest affront to its existence, and its clear goal is to disarm and destroy the Hamas terror organization. And probably, you know, in the process of solving that problem, they're creating a recipe for future cycles of vengeance. By the way, that's a conflict that could very easily spread. So that's war number two, which brings us to war number three. That's the U.S. government's war against its own citizens. Now, this has been going on ever since Trump stepped onto the scene, and it's included a semi-successful war against Mr. Trump personally, except that not only has it failed to put him out of business as a politician, it actually has substantiated many of the claims he made about corrupt and perfidious government that resulted in his election in 2016. Now, the final war is the American people's war against a government gone rogue. Now, James Howard Kunstler says, obviously it's not underway yet, but it's easy to see how it might develop. He says, I think it could commence in the aftermath of a financial calamity that's visibly brewing in the U.S. debt markets. The net result will be a collapsed standard of living for everyone in the USA, the disruption or breakdown of supply lines and daily business, and a very sharp loss of legitimacy for the people who've been in charge of anything in this country. He says, we emerge from this catastrophe, a nearly medievalized society with a steeply reduced population, unable to resist China's attempt to colonize us. Pretty scary, huh? Well, he says, let's just keep doing what we're doing. Ouch, that one kind of stung. This is The Brian Hyde Show.